Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. A historiographical paradigm opened in the late 1970s with groundbreaking works on nationalism. To a large extent, these were constructivist interpretations, which drew heavily on literary criticism. Since then, it is commonplace to speak of national myths and master narratives. If it is true that the Owl of Minerva flies... A historiographical paradigm opened in the late 1970s with groundbreaking works on nationalism. To a large extent, these were constructivist interpretations, which drew heavily on literary criticism. Since then, it is commonplace to speak of national myths and master narratives. If it is true that the Owl of Minerva flies at dusk, as Hegel once suggested, then the appearance of Stefan Berger's masterful survey of national history writing in Europe may indicate that we have reached the end of this critical project. His book, which has just appeared with Paul Grave Macmillan, certainly attempts a summation. It is entitled The Past is History, National Identity and Historical Consciousness in Modern Europe. As Berger argues in this work, the nation has formed the key framework of modern history writing. Because he discusses most of the best known European historians of the past three centuries, His book will be of interest to a broad range of readers. It is fitting to discuss this work in new books in intellectual history because its aim is not to correct the errors of past historians, but rather to uncover their underlying philosophies of history and the institutional and political contexts in which they wrote. Whether we are today indeed in a post-national phase of the historical craft is a topic we discuss in the following interview. Hello, this is Todd Weir. Welcome to another edition of New Books in Intellectual History. And today it's my pleasure to welcome as a guest Stefan Berger, who is a professor of history at the Ruhr University in Bochum. Uh, he has previously, uh, for many years, been a professor of history in, uh, in the UK and was also educated in the UK. So he is has a very transnational biography, which is very fitting for the topic of the book that we're going to discuss today. Um, The book is called The Past as History, National Identity and Historical Consciousness in Modern Europe. And it has just appeared with Paul Grave. And it was uh, co-written in part by Christoph Konrad of the University of Geneva in Switzerland. So, uh, Stefan, welcome to the program. Thank you. so let me say first something about why this um, book will interest listeners to this channel. Uh, it will certainly have to be posted also on the other channels of the New Book Network because uh, it deals really with a central topic that uh, is of interest to any modern historian, which is the question of the, the nation and the way in which uh, the nation has come to frame how we write history. Um, certainly, uh, historically, this was the case. Um, I think it's also pertinent, however, to intellectual history, because what um, Stefan does in this book is to try to achieve a critical perspective on national histories 
Uh, so it's not really about identifying their accuracies or, you know, what they got wrong, but rather to look at the sort of underlying structures um, that, 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 uh, that um, underlie these works, their philosophies of history, uh, the kind of instrumental purposes that they have served over the past three centuries. So uh, before we actually talk about the book, um, Stefan, maybe you'll tell the listeners um, a little bit about yourself, how you, how you came to this project. Okay. I came to this project really through the event of German reunification because when German reunification happened, I observed that historians started to talk about the German nation differently from the period before German reunification. And in the early 1990s, there was a marked shift in terms of the historical discourse about nation in Germany. Many debates about the German nation in history, many debates about how the new German nation after reunification should define itself. And this really, for me, brought about an intellectual interest in the role of historical writing in defining nations and national identity uh, in history. So it uh, really all started with German reunification. Very good. Um, I was, um, I, this earlier this summer, I was watching the news and there was a Ukrainian politician on the news. And this politician said something, I, I sort of paraphrased, uh, said something like, uh, um, now we will have, we will write histories that will show to the Ukrainian people that they have always belonged to Europe, and uh, and I couldn't help but think of that uh, that statement by this Ukrainian politician uh, when I was reading your book. Um, so the the book is wrestling with the relationship between nationalism and national history writing. Um, can you can you explain to us a bit about your you know these these big framing topics and questions? Yes, sure. I think that I've come to the conclusion over many years of studying this that historians have traditionally played quite an important role in defining the self-understanding of nations, the understanding of other nations, and also they have influenced a wider public and what you might call a range of multipliers in shaping what could be called national master narratives. So narratives that are master in the sense that they are dominant in a particular given time and place and that they are always trying to become dominant and to rule out other narratives which are contesting this space for the master narrative. So historians, through their scholarly work, but also through their work in the wider public, as public intellectuals or as people who did not only write scholarly tomes, but who were also active in writing newspaper articles, in giving public speeches, uh, commemorating certain events in national history, people who 
taught history and influenced important opinion makers in the nation regarding their views about national identity and the historical master narrative. So in a variety of different ways, historians played an important role in formulating the historical national master narrative in the European nations from the 19th century onwards. Uh, very good. I was wondering, um, um, well, first, let me say something about the, the book uh, to try to describe it to readers somewhat. Um, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very impressive piece of scholarship, not only because of its content, but also because of its weight. I think if you dropped it onto your foot from, from waist height, it would actually uh, give you a big bruise. Uh, so it's a really substantial book. I think there's, there's about 400 pages almost of, of, uh, of analysis and text and, and what the book does. Uh, and I'm, and I'm amazed by the scope of it really is that you take the reader, um, through nearly all of the countries of Europe. Um, and you don't go there once you go back repeatedly. So we hear about Estonian history at least twice, perhaps three times. And the, uh, the scope is really a, you know, a span of three centuries. So it's a very impressive, um, work uh, for, for that achievement. So, well, first question is, do you, you know, um, how, did you, how did you manage to read so much and how long did it take to write this book? <laughs> well, um, I started really conceptualizing a comparative history of national historiographies in Europe in the late 1990s. Um, I did a conference in the mid-1990s uh, on that topic, comparing Britain, France, Italy, and Germany, which came out as an edited collection in 1999 uh, with Routledge called Writing National Histories. And then I had the good fortune of uh, getting a European grant, a network grant uh, by the European Science Foundation, which um, was attempting to look at the writing of national histories in a Europe-wide framework. And between 2003 and 2008, we had, um, I would say, close to 50 meetings of the network, which overall assembled around 250 historians from 29 different European countries, and they all brought in their respective expertise on particular national historiographies, and I learned an enormous amount in those five years, and then it obviously took me almost another six years researching it um, before I could publish this book. So it took me a very long time and uh, a lot of uh, thought has gone into it. I think uh, comparing over such a wide time span and also over so many countries obviously has its pitfalls. And I was trying in the book to keep the analytical frame uh, of um, my particular investigation and don't become too enumerative in telling the different national histories that can be found uh, across the European continent. What, what, does, what is the advantage? You mentioned a pitfall, but what, what is the advantage of this sort of mid-level perspective where you don't go into too much depth on any one case, but rather you, you, know, you keep your eyes open always to, the, to uh, you know, really to, to multiple uh, geographical locations whenever you're treating any analytical topic what is the advantage of that method for you? 
I think the main advantage is that you are able to identify particular patterns, patterns in the way that the professionalization and institutionalization of historical writing took place across Europe over the long 19th century, patterns in the way that those national histories have been written in Europe, patterns in the way that histories border particular territories and attach particular importance to that process of bordering patterns also in the way in which these national histories relate both to subnational as well as transnational forms of history writing that is local and regional history on the one hand but also forms of history writing such as European history, imperial history, or indeed universal or global history. What, um, you know, in the introduction, you, you sort of, uh, I think, compass this somewhat uh, uh, obliquely, but your, your title is The Past as History. Um, and it, on the one hand, seems like quite an obvious statement, the past uh, as history is history. Uh, but what, what, what do you mean? What did that uh, title mean to you? And how does it fit into your project in the book? Well, I think the past can be many different things to many different people. And the historical past in the sense of the past that is being constructed by historians and by and large professional historians through their history writing is a particular way of looking at and eventually of constructing the past. And there are many other ways of doing that. In some respects, uh, we can also imagine titles such as the past uh, as painting, or the past as opera, or the past as literature, or the past as theater. So the past as history refers to the way in which historians and by and large professional historians have constructed the past. And as I argue in the book, professional historians through the processes of professionalization in the 19th century, were able to set themselves up as the one discipline that could speak most authoritatively about that past. And therefore, it was also respected by other disciplines and by other genres as that one discipline that, uh, qua its particular professional expertise, could talk like no one else could about the past. The... Um the the book uh, starts really in the you know with ancient history and moves forward but you, the the point of real uh, uh beginning according to you is is you know the 1750s and the mid mid 18th century um and there's obviously a connection between the emergence of the nation specifically the french uh, nation and this new paradigm of of uh european history writing but there are other elements that you talk about that occur in the late enlightenment what is it about that period that leads to this new conception of history? Yeah, it was actually very difficult for me to find a firm starting point. And I know that there will be many medieval and early modern historians who will be highly critical of the way that I exclude many evil and early modern forms of constructing nationhood through historical writing. And indeed, I would say, uh, if we look at historical writing in the Middle Ages and in the early modern period, then 
there is a lot of historical writing that already attempts to construct national identity. It was, for example, absolutely crucial uh, in the time of humanism, uh, when we have the first attempts by European humanists to construct national characters through historical writing. It was absolutely crucial, again, in the time of the Reformation, when uh, historical national narratives were used in particular by the Protestant nations of Europe to defend themselves against Catholic universalism. And we can go even further back and talk about the kind of dynastic histories that were produced uh, largely in the abbeys of medieval France or medieval England. If we uh, think, for example, of uh, the Abbey of Saint-Denis um, near Paris, uh, which wrote particular, they wrote the Chronique de France, so the, the chronicles of France, which were kind of written as a kind of national narrative. But eventually I decided that I would start in the second half of the 18th century because there were two developments in the second half of the 18th century that, to my mind, give the kind of national narratives that developed thereafter a different quality from the national narratives that went before. And these two processes, I would argue, is one, the professionalization and the institutionalization of history as a discipline we have to remember that before the middle of the 18th century, history as an independent discipline did often not exist at European universities and academies. It was very widely perceived and seen and practiced as the handmaiden of theology. So in that sense, it is only really in the second half of the 18th century that history very slowly begins to develop and to constitute itself as an independent discipline and universities such as the University of Göttingen for the first time an attempt to assemble the methodology about doing history, about writing history, the particular theoretical concerns, what is involved in writing a truthful history and that allows history as a discipline to set itself up as a separate discipline that is quite apart from theology. So we have these processes of uh, the institutionalization of historical writing at the universities, at the academies in Europe, which starts in the second half of the 18th century, fully comes into its own in the first half of the uh, of the 19th century and in some places as late as the second half of the 19th century. Um, so this is kind of new and this professionalization allows the historians also to draw the line, to draw boundaries towards other disciplines, in particular literature, in particular theology, uh, in particular philosophy, and say that as far as the past is concerned, it's only the professional historians who can speak authoritatively about that past. And the second process is, I think, more a process of how the nation is defined. Because up until the second half of the 18th century, we do have national discourses. We do have a lot of texts that talk about nation and national identity. But it is, to some extent, quite an exclusive nation 
that is referred to in these texts because we are not talking about all the people living in a given territory, but we are talking about essentially an elite of uh, that people. So with the Enlightenment and the, the, with the Enlightened thoughts that find expression in the dual revolutions in North America and in France, uh, we for the first time see the constitution of nation as all the people living in a given territory. And so both the meaning of the nation changes fundamentally and the meaning of what history writing means changes fundamentally in the second half of the 18th century. And that's why I think um, it is legitimate to say we start in the second half of the 18th century. You mentioned uh, some important historians or philosophers of, of this period of the late 18th and early 19th centuries. And uh, I, I was just curious, because on the one hand, we, we think of somebody like Ranke, right, that that I think uh, American um, postgraduates would all read in their first year of, uh, of their graduate training. Uh, they'll, they'll, they'll hear the, the phrase, even if they're not studying German, bis eigentlich gewesen. And there's a kind of common sense notion that Ranke found kind of an empiricist methodology in uh, history writing. But I think, you know, George Igers and others have sort of shown that that's not uh, really an adequate uh, description of what Ranke was about. And in fact, that Ranke cannot be separated from certain romantic ideas about the philosophy of history. Um, so I just wanted to open that up to you. Uh, there's a figure of Herder who you spend quite a, you know, at least a page and a half on as an important philosopher. And you at another point also deal with the, the topic of, of historicism and historism. Um, perhaps you could say something about why philosophy of, of history is important in understanding national history writing in the first half of the 19th century. Yeah, it is, I think, important. Because that moment in time, the second half of the 18th century, or what we are referring to as the Enlightenment, or following John Pocock, perhaps better in the plural, the Enlightenments, um, starts from the philosophy of history. Um, what the Enlightenment historians, by and large, are looking for is universal progress of mankind through time. So when the Enlightenment was writing national histories, it was looking for universal progress in national histories. The national history of France, for example, was interesting to Voltaire because he saw France as marching at the head of civilization under Louis XIV and subsequently. So that the national history was not interesting in itself or for itself, but because in national history, if you like, um, the world spirit um, was becoming apparent or obvious. Now, that changes with Romanticism. And you mentioned Harder. Harder is sitting right at the cusp of the change from Enlightenment historical narratives to Romantic historical narratives. Yet this is not a kind of um, stark overnight change. Harder is unthinkable without the Enlightenment. He's very much a child of the Enlightenment. Yet what he is critical of is precisely that kind of leveling, universalizing, if you like, philosophizing approach uh, about uh, history. And he instead is saying we all have to look at nations 
in and for themselves. And we should be more interested in what is particular and what is peculiar about nations. And his philosophy of history is essentially a very organicist way of looking at history. For him, history is naturally organized like uh, into nations. So in a way, he often is using the tree metaphor. So in a way, mankind is like a tree and the different branches are like the nations. And therefore, in order to understand mankind, you really have to understand the multiplicity of nations. So for him, it was important to understand the specificity of nations. And therefore, after Herder, many national histories abandoned the search for the universal in the national and instead concentrate on finding what is specific, what is authentic, um, what is characteristic of a particular nation. I think that's an important change. And if you like Ranke, as really a historian of European states, um, he was someone who was still very deeply influenced by theology. He had studied theology. He comes out of um, um, a household that is steeped in Protestant theology. And for him, if you like, he was no, not at all an empiricist. You're quite right that Ranke and uh, that um, Igers and others have pointed this out long ago, that in some respects it is impossible to understand Ranke without understanding his theology. The notion, if you like, that um, history, historical events, historical persons are thoughts of God and that what the historian can try to do by, if you like, as he famously said, trying to extinguish um, his own self and trying to kind of live in the past is to sort of get a kind of notion of what these thoughts of God might have been in the past, which will always for Ranke only be an approximation. Um, but in some respects, it is the counter opposite of empiricism because he is clearly under no illusion uh, that uh, empiricism will not lead you to what Ranke would have thought of as historical truth. I was just curious. It's really in the 1840s, 1850s that we start to see the development of what we might consider modern methods of rigorous uh, history writing. And we think always of Leopold von Ranke, the German historian. And uh, many of us from our graduate student days will remember the phrase, bias eigentlich gewesen, so how it actually was. And I think uh, picking up on that phrase, many historians have this notion that with rigorous empirical methods, um, historians will not fall victim to mythologizing in history. Um, but your book really tells a different story. Um, what is the, why is it important to think about philosophy of history when approaching uh, 19th century history writing? Well, um, I think it's important to think about the philosophy of history, whatever kind of history writing you're approaching, because what philosophy of history does is it makes you aware of some of the basic preconditions that are involved in writing history. Um, it moves you away from a simple empiricism that is still very widespread in our profession and that can be 
wrongly associated with this kind of Rankian thinking that you alluded to. In the sense that, wie es eigentlich gewesen, how it actually happened, often is taken by historians to mean we just have to look at the facts. Of course, Ranke himself is impossible to understand without theology. He held deep Christian convictions, and for him, history was a plan of God. And the historian's task was to understand the deeper meaning of history to manage to reveal this plan of God in history. And that was impossible by simply referring to facts. For Ranke, you had to immerse yourself in the past, almost kind of live in the past, and get a kind of sense of what that past was like that goes beyond the mere narration of facts. So behind his practice of history writing stood a very particular theological philosophy of history. For, for other historians, though, um, there, there was a notion, perhaps related to theology, but perhaps not, of, of the nation itself as a uh, his trans-historical agent. Um, can, can you just uh, indicate how that sort of influenced the way people approached the, the, both the purpose and the practice of writing national histories? Sorry, could you just repeat that, please? Well, okay, you just mentioned that Ranke had a particular religious theological um, notion yeah. of God's working through history uh, and that the empirical research would really be about um, helping understand God's um, greater purpose. Uh, but there are also sort of non-theological or maybe quasi-theological um, ways of understanding history that, that take the nation as the as the vehicle, not necessarily God, if you see what I mean. Uh, you know, you you write quite a bit, I think, about historicist thinking or historist thinking. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think it is very important to realize that in the course of the 19th century, the nation, in a way, um, becomes the object of religious attention. So the nation becomes sacralized at the same time as religion becomes nationalized. So what we find is two processes. On the one hand, um, and historians play a part in this, that the nation becomes a kind of sacral object, which is sort of venerated by those people who think of themselves as members of the nation. At the same time, Particular religions are associated with national character. So Poland is associated with Catholicism. Romania is associated with orthodoxy. Sweden is associated with Protestantism. And one can find different examples where you have that close association of religion with national character. So... At the same time, then, historians, and they're not the only ones in this, but historians also posit the nation as something uh, that uh, becomes a kind of religious subject matter. So 
in that sense, you can be a liberal atheist historian in the 19th century. Uh, they are relatively rare in the 19th century, but some of them exist. Um, and still posit the nation as kind of a sacral object, which you describe in a way that um, makes it almost a kind of um, object of religious devotion. Um, just to, to pick up on the, that, um, so this historicist or historist uh, approach um, looks at nations as sort of agents that are enter into relations with other nations, and, and history unfolds in a kind of give and take between various nations on their their sort of uh, uh, you know course of providence as laid out uh, um, either by God or or by history itself. Um, what about what about movements um, that are uh, already sort of international in character or or at least perceived to be so? Do do I'm thinking in particular of the socialist movement. Do socialist historians partake of the same game, or do they are they do they criticize it? How do you how do you put socialist historians into your story here? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, socialist historians in the 19th century tend to come from the socialist movements. Almost everywhere in Europe, uh, socialist history writing is excluded from the academies and the universities. And therefore, those historians who do write socialist history, who do write also the history of the European labor movement in the 19th century, they tend to be members of those organizations and parties. They tend to be autodidacts. They, they don't necessarily have a university training. Um, and, of course, you would think that given their internationalism, um, given that as socialists they were often highly critical of religion, uh, they would sort of choose a different kind of frame in which to narrate their histories. But what we in fact find is a very rapid nationalization of histories of the labor movement, of histories of class, of socialist histories in the 19th century. So you find that the German socialist historians tend to write about German history. The French socialist historians tend to write about French history, etc. So that, in effect, you also find a strong nationalization of that kind of history writing. Of course, the narratives that they write are often very different from the dominant national narratives in their respective nations. If you just think of Franz Mehring in Germany and his German history, it is, of course, also deliberately meant as a counterpoint to Treitschke's German history. The, um, another another group of historians that um, interests me and, and that you, you picked up on um, are uh, historians from minority communities uh, within nations. Uh, you'd mentioned the uh, Jewish historians and also uh, Roma and Sinti, um, well, historians or, or at least a subject of history writing. To, to what degree do Jewish historians bring in a critical perspective on national history writing? Um, I'm picking up on a, on a uh, discussions from Yuri Sleskin and Amir Mufti, are two authors who have written about uh, the fact that uh, because Jews occupied an ambivalent position vis-a-vis -vis this kind of romantic notion of an integrated nation, uh, a sort of ethnically homogeneous nation, that they were, uh, you know, 
um, tended to be among the, the the leaders of a kind of critical uh, perspective on history. Um, how, how did how did how do Jewish histor- historians fit into um, um, what you've been exploring? Yes, I think um, Jewish history writing is a very interesting case of history writing because it is diasporic history. I think it is kind of a very self-conscious diasporic history writing, and therefore there is a kind of notion that there is a Jewish nation, uh, but that the historians who write history also are living in the midst of another nation, and often there were considerable degrees of identification with that nation. But if we look at the kind of histories that they write, it's very interesting to observe that they kind of shy away more than um, their fellow Gentile historians from writing national history. So what we find a lot more with sort of histories written by Jewish historians is either the local or the regional or the transnational. So they deliberately go for non-national forms of history writing. And the assumption would be that they do that because for them, the nation is fraught with difficulties, largely identitarian difficulties between kind of the Jewish nation that they feel they belong to and the kind of nation that they live in that they also kind of feel they belong to. Um, I was... um well, the chapter I found, I think, uh, most interesting for me was probably the chapter on interwar history. Um, and I think it's because we, we assume that the 19th century is, you know, an era of high imperialism. The leading powers are engaged in this imperialist struggle. And, and therefore, we, we can readily accept the notion that history writing will be uh, serving the ends of, these, of this competition. But it, for the interwar period, it, it seems uh, uh, not immediately apparent that national history writing would would continue. Um, can you say a little bit about what happens at the end of the First World War with national history writing in Europe? Um, maybe also highlight some sort of geographic divergences that, are, that occur. Sure. Um, well, I mean, the first thing to say is that national history writing amongst the belligerent countries in the First World War continues very much um, along the lines of Uh, who was the guilty part uh, in the outbreak of the First World War, how justified was the Versailles Treaty at the end of the First World War. So there is an enormous amount of nationalist history writing, history writing in the service of the nation, really a kind of historian's war, you could say, in the interwar period uh, with French historians, British historians, German historians, Russian historians, all bringing out massive archival collections demonstrating one thing and one thing only, namely that their nation was not to blame for the outbreak of the First World War. So that kind of really uh, brings to the fore, again, national and even nationalist history writing. And in a way there, you could say that uh, Germany lost the war, but it won the historians' war in the interwar period because by the 1930s, a lot of historians and a lot of countries outside of Germany are convinced that Germany was not alone to blame for the outbreak of the First World War and the Versailles Treaty was an unjust treaty. So that obviously had major political repercussions also in the 1930s. Outside of that debate, I think uh, what also 
sort of encourages national and nationalist history writing is the dissolution of empires in Eastern Europe at the end of the First World War. Virtually all of the empires collapse, and out of the empires emerge a whole variety of new nation states, especially in East Central and Eastern Europe. And almost anywhere, the first thing they do is they strengthen the institutions of history writing, and they encourage them to write national master narratives in order to stabilize uh, their new territorial rule. Um, well, you had this wonderful turn of phrase, uh, which you, uh, you, you mentioned uh, in your book, and that was you spoke about the fact that uh, German historians had really set the standards for history writing in the 19th century, but with the, the loss of the First World War, uh, the, the kind of premier position in history writing fell somewhat to the French. And, and the phrase I liked was you talked about French methodological nationalism. Um, could you explain what you mean by French methodological nationalism? Well, I think um, methodological nationalism is not something that is necessarily reserved to the French. Um, but, of course, uh, as um, historians really from across the world uh, had to go to Germany before 1914, if they wanted to make a career in their home countries, this Germany was seen as the place where uh, history writing was at its most cutting edge. In the interwar period, I think that sort of moves to France. And French historians and French-speaking historians, such as, for example, the Belgian historian Henri Piren, uh, very deliberately after the war, partly out of disappointment, political disappointment with Germany, but partly also because they realized that, that there was something fundamentally wrong about the way in which German historians had mixed uh, history writing with nationalism, propagated what Henri Piren called unlearning from Germany. So the idea was that historians everywhere should unlearn from Germany. Uh, it had been wrong to follow the German way of writing history. And therefore, um, in the interwar period, French-speaking historians in particular were thinking of new ways of writing history. And of course, out of that came the Annals School of History Writing, with which Piren was closely associated, but the two main figures, of course, were uh, Marc Bloch and Lucien Fevre, and they sort of propagated a kind of history that took seriously some of the neighboring disciplines, such as, such as ethnology or sociology or economics, and they tried to propagate a history writing that was less national, that was more comparative, that was more open uh, to uh, other than national teleologies uh, in history. Although, of course, um, their method, what became known as the Annal School or the Annal Method, was steeped in particular presuppositions that were very French. Um, but that sort of, in a way, did not prevent it from spreading from the interwar period and reaching a kind of high point after the end of the Second World War with what is referred to as the Mont Bordelien, uh, Fernand Baudel, the leading figure of the post-war Annal school, um, and his kind of world really incorporated historians from uh, across uh, the Western and even uh, already the non-Western world. And uh, as Eric Hobsbawm, for example, in his autobiography, Interesting Times, writes, um, if you wanted to have 
interesting debates about history writing in the 1950s, you have to go to Paris. And that's where Hopbaum and many others went in the 1950s. Yeah, the, the reason I, I found that such an intriguing idea was it's a way also of thinking about, um, you know, the, the, well, the post-war period, post-Second World War period and, uh, you know, the, the, the role played, I suppose, by the United States in international uh, scholarship, um, perhaps not necessarily history, but certainly in the social sciences more broadly. And um, a lot of that leadership would really be a methodological leadership, not necessarily about contents always, but about uh, methods. Um, so I was I was thinking, you know, because I wonder if there's a, something like a methodological imperialism or, uh, you know, something similar idea. Uh, and that's why I found that an interesting um, an idea. Uh, just to move on now to the to the sort of post uh, Second World War period, um, you you note that there's not necessarily a contradiction between international history and national history writing, or even uh, transnational history, and um, and there's a sort of uh, uh, you know case in point about this sort of relationship between the two. Uh, I, I was curious about your your investigation of Eastern Europe after the Second World War. And the fact is that you have, you know, the emergence of a, of a, a regional, you know, the Warsaw Pact with a, a very strong, again, cosmopolitan socialist um, ideology, but with, at the same time, uh, strong national history writing. Um, how, do those, how do those two relate in the Soviet context? Yeah, I think we did already talk, if I remember correctly, about the Soviet Union in the interwar period, where um, there was an attempt to create a new Bolshevik history writing, a Marxist-Leninist history writing, under the auspices of Pokrovsky, who was the leading historian in the Soviet Union in the 1920s and really until his death in the early 1930s. Uh, and he was much more a comparative historian who was very aware of the methodological nationalism of um, the kind of historist age of the 19th century. However, under the influence of Stalin, um, the historiography of the Soviet Union in the 1930s, and then in particular in the context of the Second World War, got thoroughly nationalized and it reverted to all the nationalist myth that the 19th century Russian historians had peddled in. So by the end of the Second World War, Soviet historiography was incredibly nationalist. And um, when the Red Army occupied half of Europe and when um, kind of communist puppet regimes were installed by the Soviet Union at the end of the Second World War in Eastern Europe. Stalin again declared that um, history had to be class-based in content, content, but national in form. So again, he was seeking to sort of create alternative class-based Marxist-Leninist, Stalinist forms but of national history writing. And that is essentially what happened uh, across Eastern Europe after 1945. The national histories that existed were kind of painted red uh, after 1945. Uh, There was a kind of usually a class element inserted into them. There were two lines of history. There was a progressive 
a positive line of history which culminated in communist rule and a negative a reactionary line of history which had culminated in fascism or movements that were allied with fascism. There were some exceptions to that. So interestingly, Romania, uh, after the Second World War, went through a phase until the kind of late 1960s where history writing was incredibly international, where, there was, where it was almost taboo to write the kind of national history of Romania, where the national history of Romania was regarded as a succession of failures, of kind of uh, terrible mistakes, and where the orientation was strongly international. Um, from the late 1960s, that sort of um, changed completely, and under Ceausescu, um, national history writing in Romania became incredibly nationalist. It became almost the only form of history writing in Romania. But certainly for the for the first 20 years after the end of the Second World War, Romania formed an interesting exception from the otherwise um, sort of practice of sort of painting national history red. I mean, there are other exceptions. So Poland, it is often said, and I think rightly so, that Polish historiography retained more autonomy vis-a-vis -vis the communist state than other historiographies in, um, in Eastern Europe. I think that has a lot to do with the position of the Catholic Church in Poland, which also retained always a certain autonomy vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the communist state. The... Um I wanted to shift now somewhat from the um, writing about national or the writing of national histories to the the history of, let's say, critical uh, views of national history writing. So in other words, you are writing not a national history, but really a, a history of national history writing in a, from a critical perspective. Um, what, what is it that allows uh, this criticism of national history writing to emerge? Uh, where do you see the sort of important milestones in the development of a, of a critical historiography? Uh, could you just uh, write a short uh, history of your own book, so to speak? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think um, when we look at um, the history of history writing, then it is um, in kind of the West, that a deliberate criticism of national history writing emerges in a in a kind of major way that that almost kind of becomes dominant uh, from the kind of late 1950s onwards. There had always been critics of nationalist history writing. Uh, ranging back really to Erasmus of Rotterdam, who was sort of famously criticizing historians, humanist historians, for their nationalist inclinations. But as a kind of dominant, almost kind of dominant form uh, within the professionalized historiography, I would say it's in the West that this critical approach to history writing emerges in from the late 1950s onwards and it has kind of different reasons in different countries so in germany it's very much associated with the debate surrounding fritz fischer um the kind of notion of how to explain national socialism uh, in the wider course of german history 
And actually, in many places, it is the history of fascism, anti-fascism, and the Second World War, which is at the heart of these more critical approaches emerging in various European countries. We see, for example, in France, it is the uh, problematization of the Vichy regime from the early 1970s onwards that produces a far more critical national history writing. We see in Italy, there are the debates concerning the character of Italian fascism, whether it should be seen as counter-opposite of the Risorgimento or whether it should be seen as the logical outcome of the Risorgimento. So it is kind of those debates surrounding fascism and the Second World War that produce more critical histories, more critical national histories. But it should be said at the same time, they very much remain national history. So the aim is to end kind of historical apologias for the nation state and produce more critical histories, but they by and large remain very much within the national framework. Okay, so uh, okay, I, so I take your point. So, so you're saying that uh, we don't leave uh, the period of national history writing; we just have it a more uh, highly self-reflective, uh, perhaps somewhat less mythologized version of that. Yes, I think the 1960s and 1970s are the high point of that critical national history writing, and then, interestingly, in the 1980s or from the 1980s, uh, we see the return of a more uh, what could be termed apologetic national history writing. Again, in many different countries, we have the historian's controversy in Germany and then a kind of second installment of that historian's controversy after reunification of the country in 1990. Um, we have the debate surrounding French national history around the bicentenary of the French Revolution. We have a massive outpouring of national histories in France. Uh, the tip of the iceberg was Brodel's two-volume, uh, L'identité de France, uh, Identity of France, where the sort of old master of the Annal School, which had always distanced himself, and he personally had distanced himself from national history writing, by the mid-1980s, was producing a new national master narrative of France. And we see, of course, in Italy, in the context of Tangentopoli and the context of the fear dissolution of the Italian nation-state in the 1990s, also a resurgent of sort of patriotic nationalist history writing in Italy. We see even in kind of countries such as the Netherlands in the 2000s, the re-emergence of ideas surrounding a national canon that should be taught to all um, all pupils in school doing history. So there is a kind of there was a kind of resurgence of national history writing from the 1980s, whilst at the same time there were also countervailing tendencies. So uh, it would be wrong to say that the only story was the resurgence of national history writing, because especially if we look at what has been going on in professional history writing, we see more comparative history, we see more transnational history, we see the rise of global history writing. So professional historians have done both. They have contributed to the resurgence of national history and they have 
thought ways of writing different spatial and non-spatial forms of history that would not rely so much on the national. I was um, I was going to ask you a question, which I'll still ask, even though I think you've already partly answered it. Uh, you know, when I teach uh, uh, a course on 20th century history for my undergraduates at, at Queen's University, I often give them the Francis Fukuyama um, text, The End of History, which was written, I think, in 1988 or 89. Uh, but it's this, you know, it's the argument that uh, with the end of the Cold War, the big ideologies had collapsed and there was really liberalism left, which then without a, an opponent meant that there was no ideology effectively. Um, I was wondering uh, how you would respond to this uh, idea that I just thought I'd float, which is uh, uh, Fukuyama said that, that history uh, in the contemporary period, there were people living in history and people living after history. And he thought that people in the West were living after history. And those, I think he used the phrase, people still mired in history were those in the in the third world, essentially, who were involved in civil wars and uh, maintain these ideologies. Um, can you argue in any way that there's a geographic distribution in Europe between people that are in some sense post-historical uh, and people and historians who write still in this very much in this uh, his, uh, historist or nationalist uh uh, history writing tradition. Um, I, I don't know if you can you can make any sense out of that question, but uh, uh, it just has to do with you know. I started the interview by mentioning this Ukrainian politician who had uh, you know said that uh, Ukrainians were now going to be given the history that proves that they're Europeans. Um, is is that particularly a problem that has that has a geographic location? Um, this sort of very nationalist history writing in Europe at the present, or or or. Or is that not a useful distinction? I think we can say that um, the resurgence of nationalist history writing uh, is stronger in Eastern Europe than it is in Western Europe. Although, again, we shouldn't underestimate the forms of nationalist history writing that come in particular from some of the multinational states in Western Europe where say, Catalans or Basques or Scots or the Flemish have certainly been engaged in narrating highly national and often nationalist histories in an endeavor to really contribute to what they see as nation-state formation. So it's not uh, necessarily restricted to Eastern Europe, although we do see, of course, some strong variants of nationalist history writing in Eastern Europe from the 1990s onward. Uh, the Yugoslav civil wars were fired by nationalist uh, history writing in the various former republics of uh, Yugoslavia. Um, with Fukuyama, I would say it was a short moment of capitalist triumphalism that fired Fukuyama's interpretation uh, of history, and we have been seeing now for um, more than 10 years that uh, his assumptions uh, were as mistaken as earlier assumptions in the 1950s and 1960s of an end of ideology. Uh, so uh, I think that Fukuyama's interpretation, at least for me, is pretty much dead now, and I don't th really see that it has any relevance for uh, the contemporary uh, world. I think 
what sort of um, what has relevance is perhaps what you mentioned. This kind of division between kind of uh, post historical and still historical. Although I would be a little bit wary of putting it quite so sort of dichotomous, um, because I think that it's very hard to imagine or think of a completely post-historical scenario. Um, in a sense, I think we see almost anywhere in the world the extreme relevance of history to forms of identity building, uh, identity formation. And I think it is that functional use of history which sort of keeps it very much um, in front of the popular eye, which kind of makes history popular and has been making history popular for a very long time. So I see no real transition to a kind of post-histoire uh, scenario, uh, because even if you think of the various forms of transnational history writing that we are seeing, such as European or uh, universal or global history, they're very much also associated with particular projects, political projects, obviously in the case of European history, the project of building a kind of European Union, but also if you look at global history, the attempt to sort of build more global, uh, more cosmopolitan uh, scenarios that find their anchor in this kind of global history writing. You know, um, I was reminded uh, when I was thinking about really the the moral, I guess, for me of your of your of your book um, for as a as a historian. Um, uh, you know, it ends. It doesn't end. It, it uh, makes one very uh, uh, cautious, I think, as a historian about uh, the the conceits of the profession. And I was reminded of a of an episode that happened. Uh, when I was a graduate student in New York, and we had Fritz Stern, the eminent historian of Germany, uh, who gave a lesson for us, and he made the interesting comment. He said, as a historian, he couldn't be sure of the correctness of historical explanations, but he could be pretty sure of the incorrectness of historical explanations. Uh, and what I, how I understood that that comment was that he he had a sense because he was so steeped in sources. Um, as a historian, that he had a sense of, of interpretations that just didn't feel right because they didn't fit uh, the facts that he knew. Um, so it was kind of a modesty, but it was also a sort of a, a, a sort of pride um, in that statement. And, um, you know, reading your book, it, it made me uh, question in many ways uh, that particular assumption that many historians have, I think, about their grasp of, um, of the historical Material. Uh, do, do, do you want to uh, say anything about what you know? You hope the purpose of a book like this is uh, for for someone reading it. It's interesting. Um, I guess really Fritz Stern's comment can be traced back to the famous distinction of Karl Popper that it's kind of never possible to verify something in history, but it is possible to falsify. So you can't really say what truly happened, but you can say what definitely did not happen, and that that has something to do with your command of the sources, um, so that there is a kind of uh, certain way of falsifying um, particular 
narratives about the past. And uh, I think it is sort of uh, a useful distinction still to have because I think on one level it is clearly possible to say that certain narratives are either straightforwardly false uh, or uh, are, are extremely unlikely. But we are still left with a very wide interpretative range of what might have happened in the past. So uh, we're left with a variety of different ways of narrating the past, uh, which are always, I would argue, related to ethical, political, normative horizons of expectations. And it seems to me that all we can do is to lay those open. That does not mean that we shouldn't act as professional historians, that we shouldn't uh, resort to the most rigorous source criticism and that we shouldn't do all the things that practical, pragmatic historians do so well. I think that is sort of almost understood before we even start discussing. But what all this rigorous method does not do, it does not really lead us to the truth about the past. It does not lead us to a situation where we will not have contested narratives about that past. And that is not necessarily a bad thing, uh, because it is, if you like, uh, history writing will always be, has always been part of this debate about um, ethics and about politics. We've been interrupted by a squirrel in Bochum, I think. <laughs> There's a that's uh, Stefan's dog um, chasing squirrels outside the window. Apparently, um, well, let me put it another way, Stefan. Um, we we, um, we we have from Thomas Kuhn this notion of a, of a, a scientific paradigm, which he applied to the practice of, of natural science in particular. The notion that all of the the questions and the answers that scientists pursue lie really already in the structure, uh, in the framework in which they, uh, they approach their task. Um, so there's a sense of a kind of almost closed system in which then academic labor takes place. And, and I was just struck by the, the applicability of that, certainly looking at 19th century national history writing, but in many ways it seemed as though these historians were, were really uh, um, almost trapped in this particular paradigm of history writing. And that, that's what I meant about your book making me skeptical about the task of, of history writing, because it, I was reminded of this, this Cunian notion um, and, and was just wondering, you know, if, if you see things in that, that light after having done your, your, your voluminous uh, research into the subject, or, or if you think that we, we, we sort of stand in a better position today than people a hundred years ago. Um, in other words, are, are we part of this uh, just a, a slightly different paradigm, but nonetheless a paradigm? Or do we have other tools at our disposal that people did not have 100 years ago? Yeah. Well, I mean, Kuhn's notion of how scientific progress works has been a very powerful one. And it's been oriented towards the natural sciences. Um, and it's sort of based on the notion of progression, that one paradigm rules 
until it is replaced by a different and better paradigm that can explain the world better than the old one. And that then rules until it is again replaced by a new and even better one. Um, I think in some respects, in terms of history writing, I don't think we can say that in inverted commas, scientific progress works in this way. And in fact, I think this notion of paradigm change has served in the past to limit and to police the borders of the historical profession in the sense that those historians who were the most powerful ones in the profession thought to maintain their methodological and um, also their institutional stranglehold over the profession, and they very deliberately excluded other historians who did not follow their particular methodological outlook or also their, their sort of historical outlook. And therefore, I think uh, we have, in effect, a history of historiography that can be written in terms of dominant schools replacing each other over the course of time. And in some sense, I guess it is that notion of scientific progress, that notion of progress and dominance that has been broken by the various theories of post-structuralism and post-modernism of the kind of history writing uh, or philosophy of history writing by the likes of Hayden White or Michel Foucault, um, and which have in a way put into doubt this whole framework of how the historical sciences operate. And therefore, I think we have arrived and the present in a situation where there is perhaps less willingness of the historical profession to say what is the right way of writing history. Maybe there are some global historians who think that today you can only write global history in the vein that they aim at a kind of Kuhnian paradigm change. But I think most global historians, at least that I know, are more modest than that. And therefore, we have, I think, arrived at a situation where which you could describe as uh, let a hundred flowers blossom. <laughs> so that there is a kind of notion amongst the historical profession that there are very different ways of writing history, uh, that they all have their own justification, and that they're not necessarily opposed to each other, but that they simply sort of are interested in different spheres, in kind of different experiences, and that they can coexist next to each other. So in that sense, I think we have really reached the stage of what I've described as happy eclecticism in historical writing. And I think that is a pretty good position uh, to be in. Well, I will agree with you there. Um, and uh, I, I think that it, it uh, feels that we are uh, you know, reaching both the end of our time, but also we've come to a nice conclusion, really, in talking about your 
um, your your wonderful book. Uh, so let me uh, let me just congratulate you again on this uh, this very impressive um, book that I think will be of great use to any anyone working on um, questions of of the nation and history. And, and then as a, as a sort of final question for you, I'm just curious uh, if you could tell us a little bit about what you are working on now. Um, well, uh, at the moment, I'm working on a new monograph, which is looking at the development of history of historiography from the 1970s onwards. So a book that will assess the change that was brought about by a new set of theories associated with the linguistic turn, with post-structuralism, with post-modernism, and look at the way in which this impacted on some very traditional forms of history writing, such as political history or economic history or social history, but also how it contributed to the arrival of new forms of history writing what we have seen over the last decades is this proliferation of turns that we've uh, we've seen a cultural turn, we've seen a visual turn, we've seen a spatial turn. And so we've seen kind of many turns which produce new forms of history writing, both in terms of subject matter and in terms of methodology. And in a way, what I want to do with this book is survey the field, see where we have gotten to over the last um, four or five decades and associate it with a particular um, theoretical um, uh, framework, which I think informs today's history writing, um, not in a way that I think historians have all become uh, advocates of the linguistic turn or of post-structuralism. Uh, quite the contrary, I think uh, on a very sort of basic level, the input of those theories and ideas has been very limited. But I think in in kind of reconfiguring the entire field of professional history writing. It has been quite successful, and it's that kind of argument that I want to pursue in this book. Well, that sounds like a very interesting project, and perhaps uh, we can have a discussion about that book when it's finished. <laughs> With pleasure. <laughs> so uh, thank you very much today, Stefan, and uh, we look, we look forward to uh, your future works. Thanks very much. Thank you.